Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The Late Lunch, brought to you by Blackstone Motors Summer Sales Event. Get low as can be, APR, zero deposit, and finance arranged within four hours. There's never been a better time to get to Blackstone Motors, Dundalk, Drogheda, or Cavan. You're very welcome to Tuesday afternoon's Late Lunch on LMFM Radio. Lots of chat and guests to come, but let's begin today with this ongoing difficulty at Retholt College. Yes, we were to talk about it last week on Late Lunch, but it didn't happen. Uh, But a press release yesterday uh, seems to give hope uh, that the situation can be resolved. You know the story, parents of first years want the uh, college to review their use of iPads and the college is saying, look, it's been part and part of what we do for a number of years and we want this to continue. Nicola Cairns is a former school inspector, mother of three and concerned member of the Retote College Parents Association and she's with me today. Hello Nicola. Hi Jerry. good to talk to you. And good to talk to you today as well. Is this, um, has this the semblance of a breakthrough? Is this meeting going ahead do you know today? Well, we heard unofficially at the end of last week that there was a meeting planned for today uh, and it was planned. Uh, the LMETB and the Bishop, who are joint patrons of Retoad College, were calling the Board of Management to a meeting to readdress the concerns that have been raised about the one-to-one iPad policy that's been in place in Retoad College since 2014 without any adequate review or evaluation. But unfortunately... We we are hearing uh, unofficially because, unfortunately, I, I reiterate that we are not being communicated with directly, which is part of the, probably the nub of, of the problems or a part of an aspect of the problem. But uh, I believe that the meeting is postponed uh, now until the 16th of July. Okay, you, you you say there you're you're not part of the the conversation. Is that what you're saying? That you have have not had engagement. We have not had engagement. Um, unfortunately, uh, as I said, this dates back to a policy that's been in the school since 2014. And, you know, here is an example. I've been contacted by a parent who raised concerns around this policy in 2014, who failed to get a satisfactory response and then went ahead and wrote to the minister at that time. And she still has a copy of that correspondence. I myself addressed concerns in the Parents Association AGM of 2015. Six out of the seven AOB questions related to concerns around the policy. My child was only going to be an incoming first year the next year. They also were not satisfactorily addressed. And since all parents have got together and started communicating with each other, we realise that that has been the, the modus operandi all along, that where concerns are raised, they're not adequately addressed. And, you know, people move on. But I suppose what is really disappointing, but I do take on all the parents are grateful to journalists and the media who really have been our our outlet, our way of having our voices heard, because parents have followed all due process, be it through directly through the school with management 
through the Parents Association, onwards up to the Board of Management, where three mums, me included and two other mums, addressed that Board of Management personally on the 14th of May. We were never responded to individually. Uh, A petition that was signed by over 700 parents and guardians uh, whose children were impacted by this policy was submitted to the LMETB and to the school for their consideration on the 10th of June. That has never been directly responded to either. It did um, actually uh, spark an emergency board of management meeting which happened on the 18th of June. And arising out of that, was a reaffirmment of the school's position and that position was simply communicated along with the direction to go ahead and buy the iPad as directed to incoming first-year parents. Even though the petition made reference to the care of our first-year children, our second and third-year children and raised our concerns around a senior cycle trend which is the use of mobile phones in classrooms. Can I ask you this, uh, that petition that was signed? Now, you know last week, and we sent you on a correspondence we uh, we got, or an email that came to LMFM uh, from a teacher. Now, it wasn't signed. It was just signed as a teacher in the college. We had, when you were due to come on to me last week, I read some comments we got as well from parents who said, look, we're happy enough with the policy that's there. How many parents are you speaking for? What's the volume, uh, the percentage uh, that you're talking for in this petition? Well, the petition was signed by 738 parents and guardians or of families that are directly impacted by the policy in Richo's College. We have set up our own group so that we can better communicate with each other and they are numbering over 400 uh, because the group go, grew so quickly, we have um, asked, we have a core group of 12 parents, both mums and dads, who are there really to, to, to organise things and to, to keep people informed. And as we understand it, uh, there is 70% of incoming first-year parents have not bought the iPad yet. Okay. And yes, one thing that must be stressed, and we have spoken, and there are parents in our group who have had a good experience with the iPad, but they're looking at their other child coming down the line and saying, well, you know what, that method is not really going to suit them. So we're not anti-technology, and we're certainly not anti-teacher, and we're not anti-progress. What we're saying is we need to have a proper consultation. We need to find out what is the best way to educate our children, taking into consideration the very legitimate and serious concerns that parents have. And might I say, they are concerns that are backed up by a growing body of scientific research. Okay, just... And just, we want that conversation. Okay, I, I hear what you're saying. Just just come back to this point again. So you have incoming first years, and, and that's a group, and you have students at the college who are currently using the iPads beyond first year, and some who've moved on and have used them in the part, past. So you're saying your group speaks for the vast majority of those parents? Well... At the moment, I, unless I hear, I'm, I'm not seeing any organised um, representation from the from the group on the other side. Okay. And that email that you spoke about was sent anonymously from an anonymous yes. email. Yes, and I accept that. And I verification. And you know what? It, which is very um, disingenuous to this group of parents. This group of parents have have, have taken a considerable risk 
in putting their head above the parapet and being heard. And that is not a pleasant thing to have to do. But when you can write ink, will, or paper never refuses ink. So therefore, it's easy for that person who sends that email to hide behind a cloak of anonymity in an attempt to, you know, discredit parents who are living this experience, not just this year, but for the last five. So you and reject... You reject Nicola and, and, and contained within that and another couple of messages. People are saying, look, you're, you're, you're doing a sort of a solo run with a small group of others on this. You totally reject that. Well, I think that's an absolute insult to parents. And I am humbled by the parents that I have met on this journey. Parents who simply know from their deep down gut that something is not right here. I have the benefit of my background. And yet these parents can see that there is that there are issues here that are real, whether it's screen time addiction, whether it's spending too much time on non-educational sites when they're supposed to be studying, mm. whether it's, you know, the whole technology and whether it's the fact that they are from their own perspective, that they are literally they're. There are students who have come in from primary school who are very well able and who are performing very well at that level are taking a, a downward trajectory in relation to their performance. And have you have you have you definitive proof of that? You know, you say that is is there proof there? Well, here's the question: That's an obligation of the schools. Under the Education Act of 1998, one of the roles and functions of a board of management is to ensure that there are robust systems in place to test the efficacy of their policies that have direct impact on the learning and teaching of the students, plus their academic performance and progress. I have asked every year since 2015 to see the analysis that supports this way of teaching our children, and we fail to see it. I have asked the department for that, and it isn't there. Parents have asked for that and they haven't been given it. Not once, not once in this conversation have we been presented with one single reason or counter-argument or valid uh, backup argument as to why Rachel's College are persisting with what in their case is a very extreme interpretation of the digital strategy, by the way. Not once have we been told why they need to continue to dig their heels in and do their business this way. Would you... And, you, know, you can say that I'm on a solo run. Has anybody engaged with the conversation that should be around the fact that the, the government has put in place a policy, which is the digital strategy and the digital learning framework? It is five years in duration, so we're 2019 now, and it's, it's due to these well, whatever, in 2020. They haven't once monitored how schools are interpreting that strategy. They are not gathering any data in a formal way, to say how schools are implementing it. Uh, schools must, under the DES legislation, have a, a digital learning plan. We've been doing what we've been doing in Result College for five years, and there is no digital learning plan. Not that any parent has seen. OK, and you're talking there. Let me come charged. in there. Yeah, uh, No, I hear what you're saying. Just come in on that point. So you're calling for a, a national review of this at this stage, besides what's going on in Red Toad. But let me ask you this. You, you said a few moments ago, you're not anti-technology, and I accept that. Would a situation of iPad, you know, uh, combined with the book learning be, be acceptable, or would you be happy with that? Well, at the moment, we are coming from a position where they are, we have suggested all of those things and they're continuing to say no. People need to understand in Rateau College 
We buy a premium device, which is an iPad Air 2. It has nothing on it. It has some preloaded apps, which are considered educational, one of which is Twitter, for example. Uh, the junior cycle students probably get Maths in Action, which is a maths book, and I think there's a first-year Irish book in it. Parents buy into this policy thinking that there is a full suite of textbooks, the e-versions of them, loaded onto that iPad. And the, the truth of it is, there is not. There is then a Schoology app. This app is simply a platform onto which students can communicate with their year heads, their class teachers, and teachers can upload their class content uh, or their their materials, which is fantastic. And mm. I have seen some really lovely, interactive, you know, engaging, attractive materials on there. But I've also had parents come up to me and tell me straight out that a course subject has and a teacher has nothing at all in their Schoology folder. Now, how do we expect our students, our children, to perform as well as as children in other schools that are either 100% invested in the traditional textbook or have a combination of both the traditional textbook and some technology used appropriately? But in our case, the only show in town is, and they will say that there is a class of textbooks in every, or a set of textbooks in every classroom. And they don't come home, number one. Number two, parents have reported that they are previous editions. And most of what I have seen in, uh, and other parents have shown images of them is poorly taken photographs of published textbooks where you may lose 10% of the text on the page because of the quality of, or the way in which the photograph was taken. You know, this is not good enough. It is isn't acceptable. Parents are... You know, they have gone through, I, I would say that, you know, that parents have been very upset that their school is simply not listening to them. And the powers that be are also adopting the same position. OK, well, this meaning you say you believe uh, is not going to happen today. It has been deferred for a number of days. It is going to happen and you must take heart in that, in that this meeting has been called by the principals and the stakeholders in the college. But here's the thing. At the moment, 70% of parents of incoming four first year children haven't bought the iPad, right? And the deadline was the 10th of June and there was to be penalties, etc. The deadline has passed, but it's now been extended and the fines will be waived. Are you going to hold your ground right till the end? Because, you know, this holiday season, the couple of months, will fly by and they'll be back in. 100% parents are resolute. They absolutely will be holding their ground. And if people underestimate the the power of the parents in this issue, they then they will regret it because parents want the best for their children. That's what this boils down to. And our children deserve the best. So why would we accept something that cannot be verified, has no discernible benefit, and whereby, you know, it's all about the school suiting their own policy. They, the school did a survey, late albeit, because all schools were asked to consult with the stakeholders, which are the teachers, the, pu- the, stu- the children, and the um, parents. That circular went to all schools in the country last May, circular 38, 2018, and it asked them to as soon as possible, engage with the stakeholders. Our uh, survey, well, our consultation was a survey. And the results of that were made known on the 16th of May. And an interesting uh, percentage that came out of that was that 85% of teachers in our school 
uh, feel that the iPad, the use of the iPad is a distraction to students learning in the classroom. Mm. Now, you know, if they are therefore going to persist in implementing a policy which has very real issues around it, and, you know, we need to bring this back to fact, okay? It isn't about personality or who shouts louder for longer. The Stavanger Declaration of 2019 was a major study where they looked at all of the research in Europe and they concluded that children, particularly between the ages of 12 and upwards, do not learn as effectively from digital screens. They cannot engage with the text in the same effective way as they would from physical hard copy. Now, if that is the case, you know, they, they concluded that extreme caution is required if we are going to pursue this change, and it is a change, and a fairly major shift at primary and post-primary. It's tiptoeing into our system here without people being aware of it. And if we're going to pursue that policy, well, then we need to, pers- we need to do so with extreme caution. So and just be... Just, enough. Yeah, I hear what you're saying, and you put your case very eloquently and with facts. Just tell me this. What will settle this issue? What will sort it out? Well, we have already outlined our position. Uh, we said that we will not be buying, parents do not wish to buy iPads for their incoming first years. We totally respect any parent who wishes to do so for their child if they feel their child learns better. And obviously some people have already done so. We say if the, if the school wants iPads for incoming first years, let the school provide them themselves, please. They can keep them in the school and they will be used appropriately for any, any class time that's required. That's a system that is operated in lots of schools, where there's a mobile bank of iPads or whatever device the school mm. happens to be using, surfaces or otherwise. And they come into class uh, and they're used at different stages, maybe for some problem solving or investigative or research work or whatever. But we want books and we are happy to buy them. We have asked for booklets and we have been told no. For the current second and third years who already have the devices, we would like, please, to have a book list which parents can then go ahead and use those books if that happens to be what they want for their child to enhance their learning. And they should be absolutely afforded that option. Why shouldn't you say to them? And people have asked outright for books, names of books, and they have been told they're not going to be provided with them. It does not actually... It is completely unreasonable. So if the school wants the iPads for the incoming first years, let them buy it themselves, keep it in school. We would like books. We're happy to provide them. We would like booklets, please, for our second and third years for any students who want to avail of them. And we would certainly like a serious consideration to be given to the senior cycle classes where there is widespread use of mobile phones in classrooms. Now, you know, it doesn't sound pleasant to the listener mm. and nobody wants to hear these things. But when students are coming home and telling their parents that the person sitting beside them is doing online shopping, you know, in a classroom situation or they're down the back playing Fortnite or they're in study in the library and they're taking inappropriate, well, they're just taking photographs and footage of each other and mm. sharing it. All of those things, that's a reality. I... We are being reasonable. And yeah. we are not being listened to. And the fact that we haven't even been told that that meeting was scheduled for today and now has been postponed for next week, that shows you exactly where the parents are. 
in this equation. I hear what you're saying, Nicola, and I want to leave it there for today. I'm sure there's going to be more on this story as the days and weeks ahead unfold. Thank you for taking our call today. Yes, and to say thank you to the parents as well. And we have had a huge amount of support locally and nationally with parents. And we sympathise with all of those parents because they're going through what we are going through. And it's unnecessary stress when really we should be just focusing on you know, caring for our children and living life to the best of our ability. People give their children to the education system thinking that the education system knows best. Well, the education system has a job of work to do here, and I would hope that they would take that responsibility and be visible and transparent in following through. Nicola, nice to talk to you. Thank you indeed for joining me on the show today. Appreciate it. Take care now. That's not at all. That's Nicola Cairns there, uh, a former school inspector, mother of three and concerned member of the Retote College Parents Association. She makes some very valid points. She really does. And we we talk consistently, consistently on this show about the issue of technology for ourselves. But in a school, you hear things like online shopping. You know, searching the internet for stuff, taking photos, it it can be a distraction. There's no doubt about that. I hear what she's saying there. I will say again that if the board of management from the school wish to have their say, if the uh, patrons of the school wish to talk about this either, the door is always open here and on LMFM radio uh, to make your case. But I'm sure that's a story we're going to hear more about as the summer progresses. If you've been uh, watching TV, listening to the news the last few days, you'll have seen the worrying scenes in Hong Kong as people protest. And it culminated with them breaking into the parliamentary building and putting up graffiti and causing damage, etc. And in the world, it really is a flashpoint. Well, let me tell you that a guy called Aaron McNicholas worked with us here on Late Lunch. He was on uh, an educational placement for for a time and he went off to make his way in the world. And you just never know where you meet people again or come into contact with them. And there was Aaron on RTE News last night talking about the situation in Hong Kong. And he's on the line with me today. Afternoon, Aaron. Good afternoon, Jerry. Thanks for taking my call. Aaron, would you just remind us uh, about this uh, sudden upsurge in protesting and all that followed? Is it to do specifically with the anniversary of Hong Kong, you know, being returned to China 22 years ago? Or is it a combination of factors? Well, as you've correctly noted, uh, July 1st is a day which is designated by the government as an anniversary day of that milestone of Hong Kong being transferred from the United Kingdom to China. So that milestone is marked every July 1st. And also on every July 1st, we have a big protest march from the opposition camp, raising the grievances of the day, whatever they may be. Um, This year is very different because for the last number of weeks, um, Hong Kong protesters have been out in huge numbers to express their opposition to a proposed extradition bill, which would amend Hong Kong's extradition laws to make it easier to extradite a potential criminal suspect to mainland China. Um, that gets Hong Kong people very concerned because they do not trust the Chinese legal system compared to their own. So in the month of June, we saw uh, turnout figures of one million people, two million people coming out to protest to uh, express their opposition to this law. Um, now, the Hong Kong government did announce a number of weeks ago that work on the bill would be suspended And um, the way they have uh, described the suspension would essentially lead you to believe that the work on the bill has essentially been uh, permanently withdrawn. But they have not used the words permanently withdrawn. And that is unacceptable for these protesters who want any possibility of an extradition bill 
to be firmly taken off the table. And the government so far have been unwilling to do that. And so you see what we have now. Protests are continuing and show no signs of stopping. It struck me when I was watching this, uh, the ease in a way that the protesters got into Parliament and did what they did. I'd be suspicious, but maybe that's just me. Would this be with a view to perhaps prompting an intervention from mainland China and Beijing and the authorities there to really clamp down on what's going on? There has certainly been speculation to that effect. Um, Most of the speculation yesterday going into today focused on the tactics of a local police force. Um, There were police in riot gear stationed inside the parliament building for hours yesterday. And our assumption had been in the early hours of the afternoon that if the protesters did manage to breach the entrance doors and get to a point where they could conceivably enter the building, we had an assumption that they would be forced back immediately by the riot police that we knew were inside. But when the time came that the protesters did manage to breach the building, for whatever reason only known to the police at this stage, they chose to retreat. The riot police chose to retreat and allowed the protesters to enter. So that naturally invites speculation that the police intended to allow them to enter to create an image of, I guess, violent protesters that needed to be clamped down and needed a more serious reaction. That, of course, remains only speculation. The police will not explain their operational tactics to the press, of course. Um, but that speculation is continuing. As to whether there could be a more forceful intervention from a non-local law enforcement agency, namely a Chinese law enforcement agency, that it would be a hugely dramatic uh, development and a hugely dramatic uh, escalation in what is happening here. There are no signs right now that that is actually a realistic possibility. But um, so much has happened in the last few weeks that Uh, journalists and observers have uh, been more circumspect about giving predictions about what's going to happen next. Bottom line is, and you've lived there for a number of years now, is that you have capitalist Hong Kong and communist China and oil and water don't mix, Aaron? They uh, certainly don't mix. And you've pretty much gotten to the crux of why this protest movement is continuing, despite the fact that the extradition bill for the time being is now a non-factor. The extradition bill was very much the straw that broke the camel's back in terms of the list of grievances that Hong Kong people have towards the Chinese government. Hong Kong has built its own sense of identity that started during its period of British administration and its sense of identity that it was retained after uh, Hong Kong was transferred back to China in 1997. Um, Hong Kong people have had 22 years of Chinese rule. They have tried their best their very best to keep that sense of identity, that sense of separate identity. But they've seen, especially in recent years, how that sense of identity has been trampled upon, um, that grievance over their uh, identity being uh, gradually eroded. has been festering for years on end. And the extradition bill and the controversy over that was very much the straw that broke the camel's back. So that is why the protest movement continues, despite the fact that the extradition bill has been suspended. And that is why unless there are more concessions from the government, which seems unlikely, that it seems the protests will continue in the coming days, in the coming weeks. You're a social media editor with Bloomberg Opinion out there, and you were with Storyful before this. How long are you there now? I have been here for about four years now. And life in general, I know you work hard there and uh, you're part of it now at this stage. Is, is there an unease, a greater unease as, as the years have gone by or do people just get on with their lives despite these protests and the tensions? 
Um, certainly, it is possible still in Hong Kong, despite the lack of electoral democracy here, there is a high level of personal freedom. If you choose to live your life only focusing on work and family and the mundane things, I guess you might say, if that's the right word, if you only want to focus on those things, then it's certainly possible to still live a good life. There are some notable exceptions, with the biggest exception being property. You want to rent, you want to buy. The cost is astronomical, and we know all about this in Ireland, of course. But in Hong Kong, the situation, I would say, is even worse. Um, so a simple thing like being aspiring to buy your own home and own your own home is out of the reach of most of the young generation. And that is one of many uh, grievances that do get people out on the streets from time to time. Um, the sense that there is no, no, uh, nothing to look forward to in the future because something as simple as being able to own your own home is out of the reach of many young people. So although on the one hand it is possible to enjoy the personal freedoms here and live your life without caring about politics, if you link the um, economic opportunity in terms of home ownership to the wider political situation, and when you realize that, well, Hong Kong people can't vote out the politicians that are creating the policies that lead to such a situation from occurring, that's when typically uh, people that would not care about politics do start to care once they start making that connection. Aaron, lovely to catch up with you after all this time. Thank you for joining us on the show, and I'm sure we'll talk again. Thanks a million. Good talk to you too, Jerry. Take care. That's Aaron McNicholas there, social media editor with Bloomberg Opinion. And he spent, I think, about six months here with us on block release from university when he was studying. Wasn't he great? It's the grounding he got here with us, myself and Louise and Deirdre on LMFM Radio. Well, that's what we like to think anyway. Back after two with more. My next guest on Late Lunch today is a very interesting woman. She's making waves in the world of ceramics, but it wasn't always just a potter's wheel she was driving, having spent 12 years, yes, at the wheel of a boat, a skipper in the United States of America. She's from Follistown in Navin, and I'm delighted to welcome to Late Lunch this afternoon, Bernadette Chute. Bernadette, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Jerry. Lovely to be here. Well, let me tell listeners, they can't see this, but you've brought in examples of your work, and I'm at the coastline. Can I say that immediately? Uh, I feel I'm there with great. you. Great, that was my intention. Was it? Yes, absolutely. You know. They're beautiful pieces of work. What do you use to make these? They're very unusual. Thank you. Um, essentially, it's uh, it's commercial clay, but I add in my own special ingredients and additives to bring out the mineral colours. Don't use any glaze to emulate like the coast, the geology and the erosion that inspired it. Well, you can see it in them. You can feel it in them and you have it. I, I will say that. You really have. And I see that today. And we're going to post po- pictures of, of Bernadette's wonderful work on social media. And you'll be able to see them for, for yourselves shortly. Are you long at this? Um, it started as a night class when I was working as a skipper in San Francisco. And I pretty much fell in love with the material straight away. So, yeah, to give you a number, it's about 18 years. But I've been studying, been very lucky to have studied ceramics for, solidly now for the last six years. So. so you just felt this was somewhere you wanted to go with your life and something you really wanted to do? Absolutely. It's very important to do what you love. And this was, besides uh, riding around on boats, this was my <laughs> my next love. There's some love in these. Take the big uh, vessel you yes. have there with you. How long typically would it take to put that together? Um, possibly less than a day, really, because, you know, it's... Um, 
I guess it's maybe a foot wide and um, 18 centimetres tall or so to mix up my yes. inches and centimetres. But uh, it wouldn't take that long to make, Jerry. But then it goes through a firing process, which would be about 48 hours all added up. So okay. that's where the time comes in, using kilns and babysitting mm. those. Mm. So you turn out uh, 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 so much in a week. Do you work through a process like that? or Is it more organic? Um. It obviously depends on deadlines, like everybody's job, but um, it would be very well considered in that I would go exploring on my kayak, find a particular area, take photographs, uh, get the colours, you know, get that into my mind quite clearly and come back then and try and incorporate and capture those colours with the clay. So that's what you do. You pick, to, pick an area of coastline somewhere, you yes. go to it and then you produce a range of works that encapsulates that. Precisely, yes. And some of the pieces actually have some found materials like sand and whatnot in the rims of them. So that gives you a bit more of a physical connection to the work. It's a fantastic concept. So you obviously haven't left the boating of the seas or anything like that. That's yeah. meant to be as well yes, for you. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. You know yourself as a fisherman mm. that the water, it just becomes ah. part of your nature. It draws you, doesn't it? Does, it does, yeah. It, it does. does. And there's, there's something about it. That's, there's, there's a magic about it that's hard to really explain to people. Precisely, yeah. So this is my vehicle of expression, you know, and to highlight these beautiful areas. And they're they're balanced on small and precarious uh, bases because you know the area is the areas the environment generally is very um, susceptible to human impact so you know that would be another one of my driving forces is to create more environmental consciousness. Do you come across much I, I, I mean to ask you this because we had a guest on the show a couple of weeks ago who uh, boats around uh, the Scaries North Dublin area okay. up along the coast here and he's involved in a project at the moment where they gather all this nonsense of plastic yes. and dumping in the sea. Do you see that? Uh, it's terrifying, honestly. Uh, with no drama there, we have, my partner and I have explored, let's say, about 100 kilometres of the Cork County coast from Yall to Mizzen Head. It's taken us four summers because of various weather, but I would say 95% of those areas are really copiously covered in everything from flip-flops to fishing nets. I mean, it's ridiculous. So the dumping at sea is extensive and, and that's where yes. you're based. I want to tell listeners, you're based in the south in Cork, yes. originally from County Meath. Yeah. Do you sell out of an outlet or how do you make this pay? Um, yeah, good question. I mean, I'm just in the beginning stages of a business but uh, so far I've been uh, very lucky. I've been exhibiting in galleries and whatnot. So I've just taken, I'm in the process of taking an exhibition down from Ards Art Centre in Newton Ards, County Down and the work is on its way now to Dublin for the month of August with Ceramics Ireland. They're having a clay works in the print works in Dublin Castle. So that's the market that I'm aiming for is the gallery and the exhibition and then in Cork there's a great vibrancy down there with the crafts. So craft month for August and there'll be some of my work available in various venues. So people see it and they say, we want Bernadette Chute's brilliant work. Fingers crossed, Jerry. Oh, they will, because this is very, very different, very unusual, very beautiful, and would really add to anybody's home. Thank you, yes. It it really would. Um, Tell us about you. You're from Follistown in Navin, so take us back. You you grew up there, yes. I did indeed, What happened to you then from growing up there? I don't mean that in it. You're fantastic, but you know what I mean. Where did life take you? Uh, Well, you know, I was was an undecided individual because there was creativity in me, but you must have your sensible head on and 
create a career. So I started off as a as a chef and I went to Cahabrua Street in Dublin in my youth. And I was fortunate enough to be able to go live in the United States easily in terms of visas and all of that. So took myself off to San Francisco in the 90s, when the day when you find jobs in newspapers, found the job. They wanted a deckhand for the boats uh, there on Fisherman's Wharf, jumped on the boat then and worked my way up to being the skipper. Did that for 13 years. And then, you know, get a little bit older, economic downturn and whatnot. And my dad was ill, so I came back to Ireland in 2011, back to Follestown. And I started in the backyard. And now it's it's growing legs of its own. <laughs> what a life story you have. <laughs> uh, and, and the different changes in circumstances that bring you to different places. Come back to the uh, the boats and, and skippering the mm. boats. What, what type of boat are you talking about size-wise? Uh, these were to stay with the American in feet there. They're up to about 60 feet long and about 14 feet wide, comfortably take 50 passengers. Now, these are ocean-going vessels capable of going out there. Mostly, I remained inside San Francisco Bay because that's challenging enough um, in terms of navigating your way around it. Um, and then I would I practised, uh, I was on dinner yachts as well to some degree, so some of those would get up to be, you know, a couple of hundred feet long as well. But uh, I much preferred to be out in the wild, to be honest. We did whale watching trips and scatterings at sea. And Come on, stop tours. there, whales. I'm now, I'm now really, uh, you have me now. That yeah. must have been something else, it wasn't was. it? It was incredible. And great white shark trips as well. So that was a bit crazy, putting people in the cage and dropping them off the back of the boat. But we did that too. <laughs> So <laughs> they all know, came up safely, I take they it. They did, thankfully, they did indeed. <laughs> so, yeah, that but, was an addictive life. But where you were there, Alcatraz, the Golden Gate yes, Bridge, as well, yes. all these international, you know, landmarks. Oh, icons of beauty and, and horror all within mm. a couple of miles of each mm. other, yes, yeah. And and you, the ceremonies on boats, mm-hmm. you, you ma- is this true? You, the people were married on, on your boats? And they're still married. Did so, you marry yeah, them? I married a couple, of, three couples altogether, yes, I did. So that's easily done in San Francisco. You know, they're quite liberal. Anyone can marry anyone there, but I did Mm. it in the capacity as a captain. And what about, uh, you know, you often hear people when they pass, they have their ashes scattered at sea or wherever. Did did you do that? I did a lot of that. uh, That was one of the more satisfying parts of the job because people will come down in deep grief, not knowing what they were in for. And out we go under the Golden Gate Bridge. Extremely beautiful setting scatter beloved people over the side of the boat and do a couple of circles, honk the horn and just everyone is relieved relieved, and uh, people are sent off then into the the next world in such a beautiful way. Mm. So you've been involved in very special moments, personal moments Absolutely. in people's lives as well. Yes. What was it like living there and, and working at that job for what, over 12 years in yes. a, a, a tremendous part of the States as well? Yeah. Really you must have loved vibrant. it there, did you? I did. I absolutely loved it. And, you know, there's correlations between San Francisco and Cork in that it's a beautiful, vibrant city. The people are really effervescent and, and open. And then within 30 minutes of leaving the city, you're in a beautiful landscape, be it ocean or hills. There's a lot of similarities there. But I, I loved it. It was a beautiful, welcoming place and it was in between uh, Silicon Valley booms. So it was a bit more bohemian than it is now. Yes. Yeah. You were actually born in the States. No, um, no? My, my family members Your family were. were. So did you have to then, uh, have you a, a US passport? Mm-hmm, yes. You have now. Yeah. 
and an Irish one, or just the US the one? The two, yeah. Both. So yeah. you're covered. And you know when you went back, yes. when you when you finished in Cahalbrew and you went over there, yeah. saw the ad and that, did you have to apply then yourself or did it come automatically to you, the US citizenship because of your family connections? Yeah, my parents met and got married in the States in the 50s. All my siblings were born there. So um, my birth cert says American citizen born abroad. Okay. Mm. I don't know if they issue those anymore. Yeah. Well, with the fella that's there now, I don't know what he's issuing. We won't go there. (laughs) We're not going into that and and, (laughs) and the border, the situation. So home you came and you started work in County Meath. And that was the beginnings of it. Absolutely, yes. Are you happy in the in the real capital of Ireland now? It's <laughs> well the dogs will be Jerry. going mad. Yeah. <laughs> do you is it a do you feel you're at home? Do you feel this is where life is for the foreseeable future now for you? Yes, I feel like I've been embraced by Cork. Um, I got through. Uh, I really enjoyed going through the Crawford Art College down there. And um, they offered me an award of a residency. So I got to stay another year in the college in the ceramics department. So I was working out of there. And then I'm studio-less, want to stay in Cork. And I very fortunately was accepted into Backwater Artists Group. So that's a studio group, uh, which is really critical for artists to have somewhere to go. And that's been operating in Cork for 30 years. So I have a sculpture studio in there, bringing my work, my pieces down there now as we speak. So it feels like the city has thrown its arms out to me, welcomed me. There's a great network of of artists there and a community to help jettison and get a business going. So, yeah, I like Cork. Is that community important for an artist? Because sometimes it can be a lonely furrow you plough. Very much so, yeah. It's wonderful to have other people to bounce your ideas off, be it your concepts or your business worries. It's critical to have someone there just to help you through because it's an unknown road it really is you, you and because everybody's work is so different and unique yeah. you have to carve your own path with it generally are each of your pieces unique do you produce anything you, you know the way you can get a line of things yes. some some people go this route for you yes. but what i see here today are quite individual yes uh, well what's beside you there um those are inspired by uh, a place called horse island which is off uh, castle townsend um, so that's the colours there and the way that the different colours meet each other and the structure emulates the geology and the strata of that area. So mm. I work from area to area. And then this pot here that's much more marbled clay and has this volcanic edge is based on Garrettstown Beach, which is south of Kinsale, southwest of Kinsale. Do you know, I was about to say that to you because yeah. when I look at it again, I was in Mount Etna last year in oh, Sicily yeah. and I picked up a couple of little pieces and they're so similar yes. to the rim and and the the joins on that piece there absolutely yes mm. so yeah emulating that bit of volcanic and pumice and just the sense of erosion so that's what's going on with that piece is it a good time now in ireland for artists and and your genre of work yes it, it very much feels so thankfully things are on the up upswing um there are great supports as visual artists ireland out there offering support huge network within cork with cork craft and design the college itself has its own industry network so yeah there is there's definitely hope i mean obviously as uh, your work a person's work gets bigger and broader it is you would aspire to get off island mm. and go uh, go 
international, but, you know, baby steps. Yeah, absolutely. And remember, technology, we were talking about earlier on the show from a somewhat negative point of view, but the ability to take beautiful pictures of these, upload them and show her to a world audience. It's never been easier, Jerry. really. There's there's no reason not to do it mm. because through my social media contacts alone, and I'm not particularly versed at it or in good at it, but I already can reach 700 people with just a, a just a photograph. Yes. And that's not possible unless you just do it. Mm. So. And, and I think that's really, a, yeah. I, I look at your beautiful works here, that's only a grain that's in one of these <laughs> here. The, the potential is, 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 is just enormous. Yeah, and we should, we should use mm. it. It's, as I say, never been easier. The kayak out on, on the seas, and yeah. that must be exhilarating, is it? It is, yes. It's, uh, it's incredible. And you, you would be there looking up at this beautiful geology sculptured by nature and you say why do I even try and make something or emulate this beauty because it is absolutely stunning and Mm. it is the wild Atlantic way I mean it is incredible and obviously not relegated to Cork but it's really quite amazing Mm. down there. And you go out uh, all seasons? Uh, No, no you have to be very careful so this where... Weather, tides all that type of thing. I mean if the wind is blowing anything more than 20 kilometres forget it because you're just Mm. it's too dangerous. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Okay, I have two new obsessions that I need to share with you. Impress No Glue Press-On Mannies and Impress Press-On Falsies Lashes. Trust me, these are getting ready game changers. Both require no glue, so there is no damage to your natural nails and lashes, no mess, and no annoying dry times. Just one step and you're done. Boom. Instant glam. Visit impressbeauty.com slash presson and use code PRESSON25 at checkout for 25% off Impress Manicure and Press-On Falsies. I would be naturally cautious from my background. We're in a kayak. You don't have the um, the luxury of a couple of big horsepower engines to pull mm. you out of trouble. And it's the Atlantic coast. It can go yes. all can kinds of Can be ferocious. So it's yeah. weather dependent, season dependent, Extremely, et cetera. Yes. And it's important to say 
everybody should always take note of that before you venture oh, yeah. on any water mass. Yes, it's huge. You be must cognizant have, of that. Yeah, all the safety equipment and as much caution as you can exercise. When we saw your stuff, we absolutely loved it. And we said if we can grab her, and I know you're passing through today on your way uh, back home and moving some of your lovely works as well. Mm-hmm. We want to have a word with her. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for joining me and coming into us here on LMFM. My pleasure, Jerry. And I wish you well Thank you with so your work much. in the future. And I say again to people, we're going to get some lovely photographs now. Put them up on social media here. Have a look at them. Tell me what you think. But for the moment, burn that shoot. Thank you for joining Thanks me. Thanks so much, Jerry. Yes, Mr. Philip Leonard and Sarah on late lunch uh, this afternoon. And I'll tell you again, yes, that song is very special to me because my daughter is Sarah. And she's Sarah because of that song and Mr. Philip Lennon. And I wish her well today, as always. Jerry, that lady with the iPads, yes, we were talking top of the show to Nicola Cairns, had so many valid reasons not to use them. Why would you ditch the books in the first place, uh, says a late lunch listener today, uh, to 086-1800-658. That's come in by WhatsApp. You can WhatsApp or text us if you have a comment to that number, 086-1800-658 or 1850-715-958 if you'd like to call in. Another one says, my daughter uses an iPad at school and we have absolutely no problems, Jerry. She gets great exam results and is set to sit her junior cert next year. So that's an alternative view to the use of the iPads. It certainly is, Louise, a, a major issue and you are facing into this issue yourself shortly. Yeah, um, my son will be starting first year now not next year, the year after next. And I thought iPads were the way to go. Mm. I really did. No books, no school books. Fantastic. But that lady, Nicola, Karen, really, really raised a few issues that you kind of... You're have starting to, think, about to think. I am, yeah. I'd have to I'd have to think twice. Mm. I mean, why would you just... And I, well, in, in the case of that school, I don't know. Every school probably does things differently. But in the case of that school, why would you study, get kids used to studying on an iPad up to third year and then revert back to books well I can, I, I'm going to answer you on that one because I spoke to a teacher not in Rathout in another college altogether who told me the issue is this if you get an iPad going into first year and you take it that's a three year cycle and maybe we transition a four year before you go into mm-hmm. the leaving cert yeah. it will require a different iPad to get another one so it looks like it would take two iPads with the way technology and everything changes right yeah to get you through the school. So there's a significant cost involved in that as well. well I know I know everything lasts for, you know, and mm. certain, but you could have an iPad and, and break it and you could have an iPad for 10 years. You could. You could. But he was saying this is the thing uh, that, that they have a... 
have come to the conclusion that there may be a second one required when you move on into fifth and sixth year. Uh, And there is the cost factor there as well. But it doesn't make sense. I agree with you. Why go along on this platform and then change it totally? Mm. And writing. I'll give my opinion. I find it... I just find, and I'm old school, a book or a newspaper or a magazine or the printed copy, I can absorb better. better. But that's just me. The young generation probably don't need it. They probably just whizzes on the other stuff and they can do what they have to do. And the worry I'd have, though, is what she said there, what Nicola said, is that if in class or anywhere, mm. but I suppose you could do it anywhere, somebody's online shopping or browsing or following Love Island or tic-tacking with something or looking up things they shouldn't be. How do you curtail that? Yeah, Mm. you'd you'd have to really... How do you curtail it? It, It's an issue. It certainly is an issue. Anyway... Handwriting, Jerry. Yeah? Like, if you're typing on the keyboard all the Mm. time, Mm. what about handwriting? Yeah, it goes out the window and and that has gone out the window as well. It's an interesting debate. A review, I believe, is needed and engagement will have to happen there one way or the other. You're at Late Lunch on LMFM Radio this Tuesday afternoon. I simply can't wait to meet my next guest. She's the author of a brilliant book that featured on our book club called Rules of the Road. Kira Geraghty's here next. My next guest's latest book, Rules of the Road, was featured, recommended and chosen as Book of the Month in our book club on Late Lunch by Margaret Madden recently. It's an emotional roller coaster about a lifelong friendship between two women who embark on a trip which will be their last one together. I am so delighted to welcome the wonderful Kira Geraghty to Late Lunch. You're so welcome. Thank you very much, Jerry, and thanks for calling me wonderful, by the way. No, but you are, because <laughs> I can tell you this. Margaret Madden loves you and loves your writing. And I can I, I come across you with this one for the for the first time, even though you have such a stable of wonderful books. But this book has really, really touched a nerve with so many people. Can I ask you this? Was it your father's dementia and passing that inspired this? Well, uh, certainly um, my father helped me write it. So thank you, Dad. He died a year and a half ago of dementia. Um, But actually, I always wanted to write a book about somebody who was planning to end their life because I just I was interested in what the world would look like for someone who doesn't have that much time left. And um, as someone who I don't have faith or I don't believe in an afterlife and I just think... um, it sort of sweetens the experience of life when you don't. The upside is that it sweetens it because, um, you know, you're limited by what you have, your life here on Earth. And so um, and that's kind of the upside of not having faith. But um, so for someone like Iris, who's the character in my book, uh, she is planning to end her life in a clinic in Switzerland. And I just I always wanted to write about someone who had made that plan and just to try and get inside because it's something I could never, ever do. So just to try and understand what that would feel like. And I always say about writing, you know, it's it's you sort of you you it's your way of understanding the world a little bit. Um, and it's also it was very challenging for me to write it. So I like a challenge because when you're writing a novel, you're in it for the long haul. It's a marathon and it's not a sprint. And uh, so you have to be very interested in your subject matter. But certainly uh, my dad's dementia um, informed the character of of Eugene, who is Terry, my other character in the book, the main character um, through whom the story is told, uh, her father, who has who has dementia. Mm-hmm. Yet you did something that 
flies in the face of what you said a minute ago. You said you don't have a faith. You do and have written about your dad that he didn't have either. But when he passed, you opened the window and you let his spirit fly out. I did. And you know, the funny thing is Patricia Scanlon, um, who is would be a very spiritual person and uh, she's a lovely friend of mine. And she said oh, years ago um, that that's, that was the tradition that she followed. And when someone passed, she had been there when her mother passed and, and when her father passed. And she, that's what she did. So I remember the morning that my father died. It was a beautiful December morning. It was the 28th of December. One of those gorgeous, winter mornings really bright sunny blue skies really crisp and it was I've never seen anyone dying before and it was incredibly peaceful I actually could not believe it it was literally like he just slipped out of his body and I I just I did I did have a sense of his spirit and I just worried I just I'm kind of a, like well just in case it's true <laughs> I'll open the window just to release him because he also had been so ill with dementia and it was kind of so gorgeous to see him at rest finally you know and out of that uh you know torturous disease so yeah I opened the window Jerry I'm not gonna lie you've got me there for the simple reason that the first person I saw pass was my father and there was only myself and himself with him in the hospital. Yeah. And like you described there, it was as if you were with me on that occasion many years before your own dad passed because I felt the very same. I just thought something left him. Yeah, it was an incredible experience. Uh, it was just, I couldn't get over the peace of it mm. because a friend of mine's dad had passed away and she said it was horrendous. There was this death rattle and... It was like as if he was straining for breath, struggling. And I was really scared of that and worried about that. And uh, But it wasn't like that at all for us. We were really, really lucky. And, you know, we did have that sense of relief that he had gone because he had just suffered so badly with dementia. It's, it's a monstrous disease. You wrote a profound piece, may I say, about your dad when you were talking about organising the launch for Rules of the Road. You went yes, back to right, yeah. a previous launch and... By chance, this piece of paper fell out of all you had gathered together and it was brought your dad back to you. It really, really did, because I suppose Rules of the Road is the first book I've written since dad passed away. And so it was the first launch that he was not going to be at. And I suppose when I it was the guest list of the last book launch that had slipped away, that sorry, that had fell, fallen out of this book that I picked up and I just saw his name on the page. And then I, I mean, that's the thing about grief. You think you're done with it. And I always felt that I'd grieved my father long before he actually died um, because of the nature of dementia. Um, but uh, when I saw his name on the page, it, it sort of it brings it back very, 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 very freshly. And um, and I, I I wept that day. But then I, you know, I wrote down that article and uh, that's what I love about writing. It's so cathartic. You know, you just write it all out of your system and uh, and I felt better for it and I was so delighted and my mother loves that piece so that, that's always good too. I loved it. I really loved it. Thanks, it uh, and I, I encourage anybody, if you can get hold of it, read it. it. It'll resonate I promise you with so many people. You talk about writing. Let me quote you. Throw it back at you. I love writing. I hate writing. <laughs> I love having written. Writing is a bit like throwing up when you've got a stomach bug. You don't want to do it, but feel better when you do. It's like going to the gym. Come on. <laughs> Come on.
come on. Well, you know the way you hate going to the gym, but afterwards you're like, ha, I've been to the gym and you feel fantastic. So, yeah, I mean, absolutely. I work up in um, the top floor, as I call it, of my home. We have the attic converted and that's my office up there, which I adore. And some mornings you're just trudging up and thinking I, there is nothing in my head. I've got nothing going on. I'm not sure what I'm going to do. But um, a wise writer once told me that you just you show up every day, you get your bum into your seat and you sit there until something happens because you can't afford to wait for the muse to come because the muse, it's a very fanciful idea and uh, it's a lovely notion. And people always think, oh, God, it must be so wonderful to be a writer and you just, you know, wander around your house with your caftan and uh, wait for the muse to arrive. <laughs> but it's such a discipline, you know, writing is such a discipline. I suppose I didn't realise that at the beginning I wrote out of, the, you know, I, I definitely wrote for the pure joy of it when I first discovered it at the tender age of 34. Um, but uh, it is definitely a discipline. And when you have signed a contract and agreed a deadline, you know, then that focuses the mind very, very strongly. What brought you to this at 34? Now, I know you did a creative writing thing and you credit that with a lot. You say it was really important to you. You kept a diary, I know, as a young woman with all that goes with young ladies' diaries as well. <laughs> don't ask, Jerry. don't ask. <laughs> I'll, leave, I'll let you off that one today. <laughs> but here's the thing. It must have been there, was it, that it just suddenly flowed out? I don't know. You know, I always adored reading. I was an avid reader and I loved letter writing back in the days um, of letter writing because I did a lot of travelling in my youth. And um, I I just always, I remember Maeve Binchy was on the radio and she was talking about how she came to writing and she said, um, you know, I was reading these books and I was thinking, God, I could do a better job than this. And uh, I kind of thought, well, maybe I could too. And so, I mean, when I was 34, I was working full time. I had two young kids and life was incredibly busy. Um, And I just decided I was going to take an hour out every week for myself to do something that was unrelated to insurance loss adjusting, which I was doing at the time, unrelated to motherhood, unrelated to everything in my life. And just, you know, I knew I would love to do something creative. And so I just decided to do creative writing. And to this day, I don't really know why. Um, I would have done, you know, pottery or Italian for beginners or anything, you know, sort of different and new. Um, But the first day that I went into this class, which was in um, Whitehall College there, uh, Plunkett College, sorry, in Whitehall, um, I just something clicked in my head and I was just kind of filled with this joy. Yeah, but you know uh, that it, sounds daft. No, it, it, I'm not it daft. No, sisters. no, she's certainly <laughs> not it daft. Was, it was just one of those wonderful experiences. Yeah. It was like a light bulb moment, and it was, you know, um, it was just a way of expressing myself and of making sense of myself in the world. You know, and I really just knew that I I loved it, and it was something that I wanted to do. My favourite time of the day is night or early in the morning. You used to write late at night and get up early, but now you don't. No, I don't. And when I was writing my first novel, I did because I had a full-time job. So, and I had two children and they were kind of quite young and demanding. Um, so I, that, I was forced to write late at night and early in the morning. 
And I did love that. I, I called it my secret life because I, I told nobody that I was writing a novel because it just seemed like such a huge and daring and, and bold thing to do. And who did I think I was writing a novel? But I so I kept it secret. I didn't even tell my mother. And um, the only people that knew were my sister and my husband. And uh, so, yeah, I wrote in the night and early in the morning. And then in the daytime, I'd be walking around town in my suit, you know, feeling a little bit like Wonder Woman, you know, uh, <laughs> because I had this secret life. I can and, see and you. No, I, can, I, I have the vision. I know what you're talking nobody, about. Nobody knew, you know, what I was up to. But now, um, uh, since I'm a full-time jobbing writer, as I call myself, um, yeah, it's much more business-like, I suppose, which I know takes the romance out of it. But it's my job. And so I have an office, which I go to every day uh, between nine and half two while my youngest is at school. And I write up there. Saving Grace was the first in 2008, followed by Becoming Scarlet, Finding Mr. Flood, Life Saving for Beginners, Now That I've Found You, This Is Now, and on my desk sitting here is Rules of the Road 2019 from Kira Geraghty. She's staying with me on Late Lunch. We asked you to like and share. I posted a picture of myself with the book yesterday and loads and loads of you have. And we're going to tell you who's won the book after the break. And I'm going to chat more to Kira. Stay with us. When you have somebody like the wonderful Patricia Scanlon say Rules of the Road had me laughing and crying on the same page. She is such a talented writer. Yes, and she's my guest today. Kira Garrity, can I t- let you into a little secret? Patricia was tweeting this morning. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> have a look at her when you're finished here. I had to say to her, don't embarrass me, Patricia. Anyway, she was talking about you coming here today and wishing you well and stuff like that. She's a very... Isn't she, she Yeah, she's a very supportive oh, uh, she's woman and best. writer and she's been very good to me. She is and, and that's the thing about her. She's been most successful and massively successful. Yeah, she's herself, very generous. But she, she genuinely loves to encourage she does. Yeah, yeah. others as well to be successful. Anyway, we did share the uh, myself and the book on social media and copy today going to Maria Sheridan Murphy from Carneros and we'll get you'll sign it for her, will you? Of she will I indeed. Will. Well She's done, Maria. I we'll, hope you enjoy it. Oh, you'll love it. You won't enjoy it. You'll absolutely love it. Now, here, tell me this. You, you open up about who you are and where you are, and you're a Dublin girl. I am. Yeah. Proud of it as well. Will you let somebody else win that Sam Maguire Cup, will you? <laughs> <laughs> they're unstoppable like. oh they are unstoppable <laughs> they are a joke I joke they're a fantastic team but here's the thing again I've been reading and, and researching you before you came here I love this what you said and I think so many people will understand this when I say you could tell the days of the week by the dinner you had <laughs> Yes, I was a child of the 70s and indeed 80s. And my dear, lovely mama, uh, who is in Galway actually this week, so hopefully she can't hear me now. We we'll podcast uh, she for her, don't worry. Yeah, we had, yeah, we should, well, you could tell the days uh, of the week by the dinners that we had, like the roast dinner on the Sunday. Okay. And she made the apple tarts. <laughs> then Monday we'd have leftover chicken, which she would throw in like a can of Campbell's mushroom soup or something and serve it with rice and call it chicken a la king. <laughs> <laughs> Tuesdays were pork chops and 
turnips with mashed potatoes. Okay. And then we were allowed to have, like, we weren't allowed to have dessert during the week, but you were able to have two biscuits after your dinner, a fancy and a plain. (laughs) (laughs) That was the rule. (laughs) Wednesday was stew and Thursday was fantastic-ish because you got a mixed grill and she made chips herself. But she made gorgeous, like, you know, uh, sausages and rashers and a fried egg. But then she would put liver on your plate because Dr. Tiernan, our old family doctor, recommended that we eat liver at least once a week. It was really good for your iron and growing children and all of that kind of stuff. So she forced us to eat it. And what I absolutely hated about it was the blood from the liver would just dribble across the plate and infect the chips. And so we'd all be, you know, at pains trying to separate the liver from all the other delicious stuff. But your doc and your mum were absolutely right. It was for the good of your health. And you know what I love about this? She obviously cooked it reasonably rare because the big complaint about liver years ago was that people cooked the beet you know what out of it and it was like that desk it was that tough there was nothing good about the liver no, really. Uh, there were there were. I, re- I remember there were tubes in the liver, right? And they were really <laughs> chewy, and you couldn't possibly get them down only with like loads of water. <laughs> I know what you're talking about. I lived that life as well, and our house was the same. You could tell the days that dinners never changed yeah. from one to the other. But here's the thing. Really? Can you not face liver at all now? In your no, life? I haven't had liver now since I'm gonna say 1988. <laughs> liver. And I've never inflicted it on my children. <laughs> You're welcome, Sive, Neil and Grace. <laughs> Liver, mash, onion gravy. Yeah. Oh, listen. Now you're talking. I can still eat it. I can. But I know what you're coming at. You also mentioned peas as being a no-no. Yeah, peas, beans and lentils I can't bite, which is the only reason why I'm not a vegan. And also I love steak. Oh, well, why wouldn't you love steak? I do agree with you with uh, about one of your food foibles, semolina. Ooh, uh, yes, that's right. Terry mentions it in Rules of the Road. And yes. she feeds it to her daughters and they just can't, they don't believe her when she tells them that it's a dessert. <laughs> that's a con. <laughs> oh no, I just, I, I can't go there. I, I agree with you with that one. But isn't it, isn't it just like we're having a laugh about it today, but... That's how it was in most families. Yeah, we literally had three meals a day. There were no snacking. There was no snacking in between meals. And you were always absolutely starving for your meals. (laughs) (laughs) And no choice. No, no, no. You just ate it. You exactly. either had this. Yeah, or there was nothing else. And listen, did you go back? Sorry, that's the thing across me. Did you just push, push the liver aside or did you eat it for no, your no, mother? No, you had to eat it. You had to eat it. Now, sometimes I would put it in my mouth and then excuse myself to go to the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> Had your family dog? No, your mother didn't. No, we don't. I, no. Have, I have a family dog now, but we didn't have them. <laughs> what do you, you know, when you reflect on, on, on the times then and, and the, that you lived through and that, do you... Look, fondly, do you regret? Do you understand where we are today? Yeah, God, yeah. I mean, I suppose you always look at the past with the sort of rose-tinted glasses and you always think, oh, everything was way better back in the 80s and the 70s and we were out playing on our bikes all day long and, you know, down at the disused, falling down farm uh, where I fell and actually over on a rusty bar and and I still have the scar on my wrist to prove it. But um, literally out from dawn till dusk on our bikes 
You know, mm. we were like the kids in Stranger Things, um, uh, except we were no aliens or anything like that. But we were down on the beach, you know, we'd be 12 years old down on the beach swimming and uh, no, with no adult supervision. And you just, I, I don't think that would happen anymore. So from that point of view, I do think the kids do miss out a little bit. So we're poorer. You'd say they're poorer in in not experiencing what you've just mentioned. Yeah, there. well, it's it's a different experience that mm. they have, you know. And um, the generation gap for me as a parent is all about technology, and um, and and that's such a wide chasm. You know, they're on their phones all the time and their screens and on these social uh, media platforms in a way that we never were as kids, and we were always just out and about and interacting with actual human beings. You know. Do you stop that? Do you do you try to or do you just accept it well, to say, Kira, that's life? It's too late for me now for Sive and Neil, my two eldest, because they're proper grown up adults. Yes. So they tell me mm. they're twenty one and eighteen. But I but I have Grace and she's eleven and she doesn't have a screen yet or a phone. So I am going to keep it like that for well, we've told her fourteen. <laughs> So I don't know how, how we're going to get away with that. But um, I, I really think at the moment it's, it's, it's you know, you're putting a ticking bomb into a child's hand, really, with with, uh, mm. with the access to the Internet. So it's something I would worry about hugely in a way that I actually didn't worry about it as much when my two elder kids um, were younger mm. because they're, the social media platforms were just not the same. You know, they didn't have the same sort of access to each other. Back to the book. Yes. Which is why you're here today. And we <laughs> I had nearly forgotten we about it. Oh, yeah, book. I wrote this book. Yeah. No, don't forget about Rules the book. The don't forget about, <laughs> about the book. It's been received so well. It has. It's been really well reviewed. I couldn't ask for, for a better reception. I'm delighted. Did you feel that as you wrote it? And when you finally handed in the completed manuscript and they do all they do and it goes back to you and you look at it, did you have that gut feeling? I don't I don't think so. I think when you're writing a book, um, you're too deeply entrenched in it to really have any sort of sensation about how it will be received. And I always feel negatively about them at the end. <laughs> Um, uh, because I, I, I edit, I'm a huge editor, so I edit mm. uh, a lot. And um, so you're kind of sick and tired of it by the end and you just are delighted to pass it on. But um, my mother said, she said, this is the one um, that will, that you know, this is the one that will do the business because she absolutely loves it, mm. um, which I was really delighted about because there's so much of my dad in it. I was a little bit worried about her reading it. Um, I hoped that she didn't feel I was overstepping or, you know, being, uh, you know, not very, just being sensitive. You know, I, I needed to be sensitive to, to her as well, you mm. know, but she she loves it. And she actually said, you know, the best compliment that I received from her was that she randomly, she has it on her bedside locker. She's read it before, um, but she randomly picks it up at any old page and, and, and reads a, an extract. And she says she gets great um you know, joy from it, actually. Yes. And it brings dad back to her, which is... Oh, kind of isn't lovely. that just lovely? <laughs> what feedback to get from your mammy? From my own mother, yeah. Oh, yeah. despite all the liver she threw at you <laughs> over the years. <laughs> Sorry, mammy. <laughs> Obviously, look at your stable of books now. It's becoming substantial. And have you 
you know, most authors who come to me say, well, I'm working on the next one yes, already, or the next yeah, two. Yeah. I take it you are. I actually am. I mean, I delivered Rules of the Road last year mm. to my publishing house, um, HarperCollins. And uh, so I am actually, my deadline for the next one was yesterday. So um, I didn't make that deadline. Sorry, Ed. Um, <laughs> but I have a little extension on that. And I did deliver 70,000 words yesterday. So um, I am going to be working over the summer. I do try and work kind of term time because I do have an 11 year old daughter and I like mm. to hang out with her in the summer holidays and that. But that's just, you know, sometime I, I've shoveled her into a GAA summer camp next week. <laughs> so, you know, needs must. The but yeah, you're there. always writing. And I suppose writing is it's like a muscle and you have to use it every day. And if you don't, you know, it's sort of it becomes a bit depleted. Well, by God, have you used it? And I you have, have a great one here. Folks, if you haven't got this book, I recommend it highly. It was Margaret's Book of the Month at Book Club here. Thank you, Margaret. Rules of the Road by Kira Garrity. You'll enjoy this book this summer, I promise you. It is a roller coaster, but it's simply brilliant. You are a great writer. Thanks, Jerry. And I want to say thank you to you for joining me, Kira Garrity, on the show today. It's my absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. success. Thank you. The International Festival of the Harp is happening as we speak and I'm delighted that I'm joined on Late Lunch today by two beautiful young women who are going to play the harp for us. I mentioned a moment ago there are Lana Thornburg and Mary Hogan but first today she's back with us on Late Lunch and I'm delighted to welcome her back. Aileen McCran is the Festival Director of the International Festival of the Harp. Aileen, good to see you again. Thanks very much for having Thank you, you for joining me on Late Lunch. 30? How many years? We're 34 years on the go and for the last 34 years the same team of tutors and performers has been coming to Angrianon to teach and to perform the harp for numbers of young harpers and this year we have over 70 at the festival and we're welcoming in another 60, 70 young harpers tomorrow for a whole day of harp playing so we'll have 150 playing. It's... Fantastic, let me say. And congratulations on the longevity of the 34 years. What about you and your involvement with this? Explain to me, how do you become festival director? Well, you know what? I think I'm the oldest swinger in town because, <laughs> because I was teaching on the festival years and years, way, way, way back when it was established first by Gronje Yates and Mercedes Garvey. And a number of us uh, date from that time. And um, my function at the minute is that I'm festival director. So I put the programme together and the artistic programme and then we have an administrator who helps out, Rachel Duffy. And then we have a fantastic voluntary team of Cordon Crita members, Friends of the Harp members, who work for the last two or three months bringing the final details of the festival together and working on site. You know, we sell books, we sell music. We have had a fabulous harp makers exhibition last Sunday and more than 11, 11 Irish harp makers came in and exhibited at that exhibition and you wouldn't think now would you no. that there were 11 harp makers you would out think there. it's a very very niche thing altogether so really it's a coming together of the harp family all aspects of it as well workshops performance concerts you name it the lot absolutely and we have workshops t- teaching all morning classes for the participants workshops and events all afternoon and then we have just a fantastic series of concerts 
all of this week, which started in Bewley House and which is going on Monday night, Tuesday night. Tonight we have a, 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 um, a gesture to the men, our all-male harp lineup, where we've Ethan Avar, a fantastic lineup of men. Tomorrow night we have a great ensemble concert with ensembles from all over Ireland coming into us. And Thursday night then, for the first time ever, we have an artist in residence, Maeve Gilchrist. And Maeve is a Scottish-born harp player working out of New York, but she has been working with the young harp players all week and she herself with the RTE Contempo Quartet and dancer Nick Gares are going to be performing in Anglionon and it is a first for us and we are really excited about it. And all details are available from irishharpfestival.eventbrite.ie That's where you need to go. irishharpfestival.eventbrite.ie If people show up to Anglionon, yes? They oh, we'll welcome everybody at the door. We'll, we'll be delighted to bring them in. We have two lovely young ladies with us here. Can we hear some music? I have to say, I, I've said this before, I just love the harp. I don't know what it is about it. it there's something special, isn't there? There's something that symbolises Ireland, yes? Yeah, well, the harp has the magic and you find that when you're playing the harp, it just calms audiences down. We had a fabulous day last year, Lorna Critza National Harp Day, which is, is in October, November. And we had thousands, well, no, I'm, I'm exaggerating. We had more than 2,000 people playing the harp all over Ireland and audiences just melt, don't they? When, the, when they hear it. Will you so, melt late lunch audience now, ladies, for the next while? They're going to play, introduce the piece, will you please? So what they're Aileen. going to play is a piece called She Velg She Wore by the last of the great Irish harpers, Thurloch Carolan. From County Meath. From Nobber and County Meath. And Mary is from Nobber and County Isn't Meath. Isn't this a wonderful connection? Mary Horgan is going to play with us now, uh, now uh, from uh, County Meath, as we mentioned, and the lovely Alana Thornburg from Swinford in County Mayo. So ladies, away you go, Late lunch listeners are waiting.
Absolutely beautiful, ladies. Well, well done indeed. And a familiar piece uh, that is there, you have to say. Absolutely lovely. Shebeg Shemore uh, by the great Carolyn from Nobber played this afternoon on Late Lunch by two wonderful harpists, Alana Thornburg and Mary Horgan. Ladies, you're very welcome to the show. Nice to have you here with us and thanks for that beautiful music. Can I start with yourself, Mary Horgan? That must be special for you, being a Meath woman playing a classic piece from Carolyn. Yeah, so um, living in Albert, it's great to be able to continue playing all Thurlock's music. And um, my teacher over the years was Derville Finnegan and she runs a great harp school in Albert. And um, we always uh, play at the O'Carolan Festival, which is in yes. October every year. Mm. So it's great that his music is still kept. Oh my, oh my, forever and ever. What age did you start playing the harp at? Uh, so I started playing the harp when I was seven. Um, I started the same day as my brother. And um, we've both been playing since. So that's 12 years on now. <laughs> and is it the only <laughs> instrument that you ever uh, wanted to play? Did you try anything else beforehand well, or I, since? Yeah, I started with the piano when I was four years old. And... Um, then uh, I we moved to Nauber. Well, my dad is from Nauber, but we were living in RD and we moved to Nauber when I was two and a half. And uh, my mum brought me up to the harp festival and she said I wouldn't leave until she promised I'd be able to learn the harp someday. So um, then when I was seven, I got the chance to begin learning with Derville. And, yeah, the rest is since. history. You've been harping <laughs> and playing ever since. Is it a difficult instrument to grasp and get to grips with? Um, well, like any instrument, I suppose uh, it takes time and it takes practice. But I guess playing the piano first, um, I was able to, I had a bit of musical knowledge and I was able to transfer that over and having a great teacher has as well. Mm. And um, I attended the Ungreen On Festival over the years as well when I began to get a bit older. So um, it's great to uh have been taught by so many different teachers and to get an experience of everyone's style, yeah. Do you practice much? Does it take a lot to maintain (laughs) proficiency and learn new pieces? Um, Yeah, well, especially when I have um, exams or competitions or different events to practice for, I'd put in more effort, but I I generally generally would try and play every day or when I can. Do you? Yeah. Fantastic. (laughs) Let's bring in the woman from Mayo. Alana Thornburg is with us on Late Lunch. You're very welcome to the show. I'm just thinking of you because you're hightailing it back to Mayo when we are finished here by planes, trains and automobiles. (laughs) Is that difficult with that harp? Um, Yeah, yeah, it is. This harp has been everywhere. (laughs) Yeah, I have to go back on the train to Dublin and then get a bus back Mm. to Mayo. I'm teaching in Westport for the week. (laughs) Do people look at you with this in, in tow and say oh that poor young one yeah pretty much every day somebody says something they usually mistake it for a cello actually all right (laughs) but look you do what you do and you're well used to it at this stage what's your story when did you start playing uh well i was suppose i was kind of late starting the harp Uh, i would have started playing music when i was five to Mm. whistle and fiddle and then piano but then when i was 11 i started playing the harp there was always one in the house my mom plays the harp well she played she doesn't play much anymore but yeah, I just kind of took to it, and and this is the instrument yeah. of preference now yes, for you. Yeah, it's my baby. Show me your fingers. <laughs> Let me see them. Are the welts on them? Very callous. Are they? Is you that never what get happens? My nails done oh God! Isn't <laughs> that one of the short. downsides of playing the harp? <laughs> Obviously, great. you have to have them. They, they toughen up, do they? Yeah, yeah. Is oh, it yeah. difficult in the early days when you start? Do they get really sore? 
Um, yeah, I suppose in the early days, well, I suppose just like repetition. And yes, you get used to it. Yeah. Totally. And then uh, if you leave off for a while, which you don't, obviously, we've just <laughs> been told a moment ago by the mead lads, uh, practice is very important. You're at yeah. this all the time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Pract- practicing, playing, gigging, yes. teaching. Yeah. Fair to say thing. it's a universal language. It's taken you to many counties within this country and to places over the world. Yeah, yes. Yeah, all over the world. I was... I'm an American citizen as well, so I've oh, spent yeah. a lot of time playing in America and, yeah, um, all over Europe as well. With my band, I'm in a new band. Great so. stuff. But it is loved. It is. Back to you again, Aileen. That's the thing about this instrument. It's. It, I say I love it and we Irish love it as well, but it has a resonance right around this globe, hasn't it? Absolutely. And I mean, I've been playing all of my life and my colleagues back on Greenon have been playing as long as we can all remember. So we have people attending the festival from all over the world and, and the harp just draws people in. And I think it's the passion that everybody has for the instrument. Like Mary and Alana have just been playing in the Tulsil series and they were drawing with the doors wide open and they were drawing the audience in from the street to listen. Oh, and the heart of Drogheda, yes. Yeah. Mm. And we have another very great concert there on Thursday at lunchtime where I know it'll have the same impact. Thursday lunchtime, the Tholsal, it's free. You can just wander into the Tholsal to experience this wonderful music as well. And then reminding people that tonight and on Green On, you're on again. Tonight we've eaten a var with yes. all the men, all the men harpers. We're encouraging yes. men and boys back into playing. Okay. Tomorrow night we've all the ensembles and then Thursday night I was saying to you our uh, Contempo, RTE Contempo String Quartet, which is the first for us with Maeve Gare- Maeve. Gilchrist and Nick Garess, the dancer. That'll be a wonderful evening. Wonderful evening. No excuse. Irishharpfestival.eventbrite.ie I love what you do. Keep it going. 34 years. It'll be 35 next year. Congratulations to you and everybody involved in this wonderful, wonderful event that happens at On Green On every single year. We'll finish out with the harp, if that's okay. Aileen McCran, thank you for joining me again. Thanks for having us, Wish you well. And again, thank you to Alana Thornburg and Mary Hogan for the beautiful playing for us today. What are they going to finish with? They're going to play a slip jig, I think. Isn't that right? A jig. A, a jig. jig. Yeah. We're going to finish with a jig yeah. on the harp. Thank you for joining me. Contentment as well. Oh yes, this is very important. Contentment as well. Contentment we as well. We were agreeing with them beforehand, weren't we? That's yeah. the secret to life. Yeah. Contentment as well. There's no other secret, and here Absolutely. it is in music. And arranged by. Uh, I think we both have our own arrangement. You both okay. have your own arrangement. Oh, this is going to be very interesting yeah, indeed. Thank you for joining me in the show. We'll leave you with the beautiful harp music from Alana and Mary, and see you tomorrow. Coming live from the Hill in Belliston, late lunch tomorrow afternoon. So if you're up there, give us a shout. But for the moment, we say goodbye in the company of the beautiful harp. Away you go, Alana and Mary. <laughs>
absolutely beautiful. Congratulations to you. And I do want to mention, this is very important, this event each year wouldn't happen without the support of many people. And in particular, we want to mention Louth County Council and the Arts Council, who support this festival every year. And I know everybody is very, very grateful. That's a lot on Late Lunch for this Tuesday afternoon. See you tomorrow on The Hill. The Late Lunch, brought to you by Blackstone Motors. Setting the standards higher for award-winning customer service you can trust. Visit your regional dealer for Renault and Dacia in the Northeast for exclusive offers with lowest can be APR finance and finance arranged within four hours. Dare to live? Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.